Seattle is going to need some law and order, Bubba Wallace is going to need some common sense, and America is going to need a little bit of France. I'm Josiah Everton, and this is The Glorious Rescue. Welcome back to another episode of The Glorious Rescue. I'm extremely excited to jump into this episode, but before I do, I wanted to take a quick minute to just express some gratitude. I appreciate all the support, the shares, the suggestions. We're only about six episodes in or so, and we're just starting to get into a little bit of a groove, and yet we've already seen hundreds of downloads and listens. We're in about a dozen or so states, I believe, a couple different countries now. So I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to all of you for sharing it and continuing to share it and passing the word along. So thank you all for your wonderful support. I do appreciate it, and please continue to support it as you continue to enjoy it. So as we jump into this episode, I want to just briefly hit a couple stories, and then I want to spend a little bit more time than normal on our end-of-show segment. I'm extremely excited about it, but I do want to make sure I leave ample time for it. I believe it's very fitting for our time. I believe it's very applicable and very integral to the idea of what is truly important in our American government. And so I want to leave ample time for that and just briefly touch a few of the stories today, or a couple of them, And as we jump into them, you will probably be scratching your head as I've been. But I do truly believe that America is due for a wake-up call. It is time for a wake-up call, and I do believe, and hopefully this episode will be a little bit of that for you. As you see the craziness of the news continuing to ensue, and as we delve into a deep discussion during our end of show segment, I do hope that this helps in the idea of a wake-up call. And I hope as you continue to share it that we would be able to share this wake-up call with the rest of the world. So here we go, our first story is a shooting that happened over the last few days in Chaws, or I guess I now should say CHOP. Obviously, when we look at this zone, we don't really see it as the bastion for peace and civility in America. It really is an area of violence and horrible evil and a lot of really strong violence occurring. These shootings, yes, are horrible, and I feel bad for the victims, and I do empathize with them. I do also want to add that they are of their own volition living in this zone. It is totally their prerogative and their choice to live within the zone. They can leave at any time, but they choose to live inside of a hotbed of violence. And so because of that, they statistically are subjecting themselves to a higher chance of violence. So there has been several deaths, several shootings, but I wanted to call out one specifically. And this is an individual who was shot during one of these shootings. But I want to first just play his brief video that he put on TikTok. I was shot in Seattle at Chaz on Friday. The cops left me out there to die. I need help with somebody in the legal or media to get my story told and get it out there. I got shot five times. Need you guys help. The cops left me out there to die. Look, I've said this. I don't know the situation. And so no matter what they are, I empathize with him. He was shot, probably wrongfully so. I do want to add that he is living in this area of his own volition, but that obviously is no justification for the action. I do not wish harm upon this man, and I think that it was a horrible event if it really did take place against him. He is in a hospital during this video. I believe him. I don't think he's just making it up, which we're going to get into uh, the idea of making something up in the next story briefly. Here's the reality. The cops actually were called for this incident, and the cops attempted to gain entry into the zone, but they were denied access. They were being cursed at by protesters and rioters living in the area, cursed at, threatened for violence. They barricaded them out, would not allow them to get in, and sent them away. The police report stated that they attempted to get in but could not. So no, the cops did not leave you there hanging to die. 
your fellow CHOP citizens did. The cops attempted to help you in a zone that they are not welcome in. That's actually what the cops did. It is important to note the continuing developments with the idea of Seattle, the mayor, the police chief, starting to crack down on this zone. The I believe the phraseology they're using right now is that they're going to phase out CHOPs or phase down, I guess you could say CHOP. So we don't necessarily know what that means, if it's going to be peaceful, slow, or a type of police entry. We don't necessarily know, but it is going to happen eventually. So I just want to point out the hypocrisy of, of this but before moving on. It's the idea of we are going to publicly and unilaterally shame cops. We're going to call them evil, racist people, all of them, unilaterally, with no justification, no caveats. We're just going to publicly and unilaterally shame them, call them evil and racist people. Then we're going to set up a zone where they are not welcome, where they are trampled on, where they are being cursed about, and where they are being cursed at. We're going to set up a zone there. And then when actions of wrongdoings and violence happen, we are going to call them to come help us. And then when they get here, we're going to reject them. We're going to curse them, barricade them out. And then after this is all said and done, we're going to also blame them for the entire situation. We're not just going to blame them for not responding, even though they absolutely couldn't, but we're also going to blame them for the actual action. We're going to say that it was their fault, that it was their actions that incited this violence. I'm sorry, but you entered this police-free zone of your own volition, and I'm not talking about this person specifically because I empathize with the violence that was done to him, but you entered this of your own volition and publicly and unilaterally shamed cops created a zone without them, then called them to your aid, rejected them, and blamed them. It is hypocritical, wrong, and immoral. And I do hope that it starts getting, quote-unquote, phased out. It needs to be. It's time for this to end. Now I'm going to conclude with that and then hop over to one quick story. And like I mentioned, it's the idea of making something up. And that is the case with Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace is a NASCAR driver, and I just want to read you some of the headlines from the mainstream media, and I want you to kind of get a grasp if you haven't heard of what you think the story was. Here's one. Following a powerful show of solidarity where NASCAR drivers and crews all rallied around Bubba Wallace after a noose was found in his garage, and the headline continues. Here's the next one. NASCAR drivers pushed Bubba Wallace's car to the front of the pack in solidarity after a noose was found hanging in Wallace's garage stall. Here's another. NASCAR drivers and crew members showed solidarity with driver Bubba Wallace at the Speedway. This was after a noose was found in Wallace's garage. What do you gather from that? I gather that there was a noose found in this man's garage. Well, turns out it wasn't. Bubba Wallace came out and said that there was a noose in his garage. He stated that it was an act of racism, it's a symbol of racism, and that it was a hate crime. NASCAR completely and quickly sided with Bubba Wallace and then prompted an investigation, 15 FBI agents came and totally blew out the case. They said, no, it's not. It wasn't a noose. In fact, it was a garage door lever. And there's lots of pictures of all these nooses in all these different garages in the NASCAR raceways. This quote-unquote noose, you can see it's not for the size of a head, it's for the size of a hand. And it's directly next to the garage door on all of these garages. So the FBI ruled it out, said it wasn't going to happen. NASCAR then came out after and said, you know, the FBI ruled out the idea of this being a noose. We're grateful that it wasn't a hate crime against Bubba Wallace, etc. Well, Bubba Wallace totally rejected it, came out after saying, no, this was a noose. I'm sure it was a noose. Anyone who denies it is just denying common sense, is basically a racist and all this. Okay, he's just denying common sense. It's not a noose. Photographic evidence, FBI investigation, it's not a noose. He's acting as a victim. But I wanted to show you those headlines. 
So you can not only see the, uh, the craziness of the victimhood mentality, but also the craziness of the mainstream media bias. That all of the headlines automatically assumed it was a noose before the FBI investigation. And now once it has come out, now we can see that it's not a noose. That it's the size of a hand to open a garage door. So that's the idea of behind the title, Go Woke or Go Broke. The idea of we must totally line up with the left and push the narrative. Otherwise, we have no shot for survival in society. Okay, so those were the two brief stories I wanted to get into. Not going to continue to go in deeper. Again, the purpose of the show is to be able to give you all of your news, your dose of the news in a very consolidated manner, and then continue to move on into deeper discussions. And that's what we're going to do with our next segment of The Vast Past. Welcome to yet another segment of The Vast Past. Today we're going to discuss a French philosopher, author, and I would even categorize him as a little bit of a revolutionary, and that is Montesquieu. Montesquieu lived about 100 years before the French Revolution. He lived from 1689 to 1755, so up until about 20 years before the American War for Independence, but about 100 years before the French Revolution. And so we're going to look at a little bit of his life, his writings, his beliefs, and then once we kind of get a little bit of a deeper understanding of who he was, what he believed, we're going to apply it to today. So as we begin, we have to really put ourselves back in the time frame, the time frame in which he lived in human history. The time he lived was an era of monarchy. And I would say that Montesquieu was really the one who revived the idea of republicanism in a world of tyranny. And we can see republicanism and the idea of a republic throughout human history before Montesquieu. Obviously, we think of probably right away Greece, but really this era was an era of monarchy. And Montesquieu is the one who revived the idea of republicanism, and he makes very interesting points on how to preserve a republic that I would say are extremely applicable to our republic today. So not only did he revive the era of republicanism, not only did he live in this era of monarchy, but he lived in an era of French defeat. Montesquieu lived in a time of seeing defeat after defeat from the French government. In fact, in the 18th century, so the 1700s, when Montesquieu lived, the only war that the French won was the American War for Independence, because they sided, obviously, with the colonials. And so Montesquieu is looking at this from the angle of, we're living in an era of monarchy, and monarchy is losing. What's wrong with monarchy? And he rejects the French idea, the French monarchy idea, of conquest, glory, and monarchy. So he really sees all the defeat that France is experiencing and all the battles that the monarch is losing, and he sees and notes that France has become incapable of conquest, that France is able to err. And from that, he really notes the idea that the French monarch is not perfect. And he, in his writing, shares the idea that the monarchy is imperfect. That really starts, I would say, the sparks of the French Revolution in the hearts of the French. And so he really emphasizes the idea that monarchies are imperfect. He grows up when, obviously, the regime of France is at stake. And he grows up to be a lawyer, a legislature, and he's the single most influential political writer and theorist during this time. Not only that, but his book, Spirit of Laws, it is cited more in North American newspapers and pamphlets between 1762 and 1800 than any other work. All the writings, all the books, pamphlets, all the works of literature, of all of those, none of them are cited more than Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws between 1762 and 1800 in North America. And we're going to explain why. So the premise from which Montesquieu writes is this argument. The smaller the country, the better chance of republicanism. The larger, 
the better chance of despotism. And this is actually a premise that I would agree with if we're talking about this time in history. If you look back through history, really the only successful republics were cities, where the body of government were very close. It could be a local government where people could come together as a representative government because they were close. There was not much distance between them. But then as the empire or the country or the state or city grew, as there was a larger area, not necessarily in population, but of size, of actual landmass, there's a larger and better chance of despotism. Why is that? That's because if you have a very large, spread out kingdom, then there's a very strong need for a strong, centralized executive government. The idea of despotism or, or tyranny, whether it be a person or a party, but there needs to be strong, swift action on behalf of the government. Information doesn't flow very quickly, and so you need someone to be able to make decisions from very far away, and there needs to be a lot more. I wouldn't say there needs to be a lot more, but there t there's a tendency for there to be a lot more dominating of a government just due to the fact that the sheer size of the kingdom necessitates it. I would say that's not necessarily true now with obviously technological advances. We now have the ability to communicate much faster, and even though a country might be very spread out physically, with technological advances, that doesn't necessarily mean that communication has to be slowed. So then in Spirit of Laws, he then tackles the idea of how do we resolve this? Because republicanism is better than despotism. We ought not to just simply resort to, well, this is a larger kingdom, so it's going to go despotic, and the subjects there are going to live under tyranny. Or the converse, while this is a smaller city, they now have a better chance of proper government, the ideal republic, they have a better chance of that because they're smaller. We don't just want to resort to that, but we want to be able to resolve and move forward in a large country as a republic. So how do we do this? How does that be resolved? And he gives two, and I would add a third one to the solutions he gives on how do we resolve this. And those are what are extremely applicable to today and to our government today that I think are very interesting. And it actually comes from a Bible verse. One of the ideas he gives comes from a Bible verse. And he actually, I would say, he basically quotes this Bible verse. So we're going to hop into it. First of all, he says the first way to resolve this is the idea of federalism. Federalism is still important today. Federalism is the idea of smaller federations within a country, and they have equal power. That's the, I guess you could say, strict definition of what federalism means, the idea of federations within a country or a body. So what would we call federations today in the United States? It would be the states, the idea of United States of America. So we have the federal government, that is the government over the entire nation, but the smaller federations broken up, there's 50 of them, and those are the 50 states that make up, united together, the USA. So federalism, like I said, the definition, smaller federations within a country with equal power to that country. That means that state and federal government ought to have equal power. And this is something that has not been true of American government for at least 150 years. Over the past 150 years, the federal government has become so vast and large and expansive over state governments that we now have the term federal coercion. The federal government it sits above the state governments and governs what those state governments can and can't do. And the state governments sit above the local municipalities, the local governments, and dictate to them what they must do. But if you remember, one of the amendments to the Constitution states that the powers that aren't given to the federal government 
and expressly stated in the Constitution should be granted over to the state governments. So anything that is not found within the Constitution ought to be passed on to the states. Montesquieu makes the argument that they should be equal, which I would agree with. The Federalist idea that the federal government and the state government and the local governments are not ranked in hierarchy, but they are all equal in power. And so this gives the idea that no one government, one area of government, can bring about despotism. The federal government ought not to become a tyranny or tyrannical, same with the state or local, because they each balance each other. There's an internal check within the governments because they're all of equal power. Now we have an expansive executive branch, a very large bureaucratic federal government that coerces the states. And a lot of that is because the states take so much grant money that they are now indebted literally indebted to the federal government to do what the federal government wills because they take so much money from the federal government. That is not how it was intended from the beginning. So first, the idea of federalism. Secondly, the idea of separation of powers. That within each government, on each level, there should be a division of powers. Today, we have it divided among the three branches of government, judicial, legislative, and executive. But where does this come from? This is the Bible verse I was talking to you about. Montesquieu makes direct reference to Isaiah 33:22. It states this, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. In that verse, you can see three distinct branches of government. The judge, the lawgiver, and the king. The judicial, the legislative, and the executive. Expressly referenced from the Bible, Montesquieu makes the argument that the governments ought to be divided and dispersed in function. That there ought to be a branch that creates the law, a branch that enforces the law, and a separate branch that interprets the law. Obviously, now we see that that is so far gone from what we have today. And this is what's so frightening, is because the power is not really divided among the branches, but they all somewhat act outside of their parameters, that is where we see a true danger in, of tyranny, a real threat to liberty, because there is now not really a division of power. So those are the two he makes. I would make a third, and that is the consent of the governed. I will say when he makes these two arguments, it is probably because he's talking about internal limitations of government. Internally, the government can be regulated by the idea of federalism, division of rank, but then obviously separation of powers, division in duty. So those are internal regulations on government. The one that I'm adding is an external regulation on government, the idea of consent of the governed. We have elections that take place where we, by our own consent, allow the government to do what they will. Consent of the governed comes through the idea of the election process, that we, as the people, have the ability to elect a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But he says these two are strong ways to resolve the idea of a republic's future. How do you preserve a true republic? It is to uphold federalism, separation of powers, and consent of the governed. Those are pillars upon which our republic rests, all being degraded during this time, might I add. But those three pillars... We must, as Americans, defend and protect with all of our might, because without those three pillars, the building of liberty falls. The protection of human rights fades away. It fades away into an obscure dark that we may never see again, a risk that I am not willing to take, nor will I ever be, a risk that I hope all of you as listeners will not be willing to take, that we must preserve the ideals for the preservation of our republic, to ensure that liberty is passed down to the next generation that our children and our children's children can grow up in a nation of prosperity and freedom. And without these three tenets, our republic will fall.
Again, I stress the importance of studying these founding principles, people, documents, events. I stress it because when you choose to study them, you will develop a desire and a love for them. And it is that love for these documents and founding principles that will seek to have them be reinstated into our American government to help us preserve what we love and what we hold so dearly. Again, I hope this end of show segment was extremely helpful to you. I hope you learned a lot and I hope that it does aid you in your political worldview. If it has, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, again, I can't stress enough how much it helps if you're listening on Spotify right now to just open it up, hit that share button, post it on your Instagram story, tag The Glorious Rescue. You can do so, obviously, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts as well. If you are listening over on iTunes, please give us a five-star review. It does help us as we are going to attempt to climb those charts. Don't forget, tune in on Tuesday for another exciting episode where we're going to jump into all of the latest, so make sure to be ready Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Josiah Everton, and this is The Glorious Rescue.